Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Life in the 1800s was difficult, dangerous, and reliant on the elements. On January 21st, 1842, a man was born who would go on a journey and come back with a story to tell. A story of danger, of harsh elements, and of desperation. A story that changed again, and again, and again. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Alfred Grenier Packer was born on January 21st, 1842 in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, and lived most of his childhood in Indiana, where his father moved the family to work as a cabinet maker. Desperate to leave the bitter relationship with his parents, Alfred moved to Minnesota when he was just a teen to work as a shoemaker before packing up and enlisting in the Union Army on April 22nd, 1862. Eight months later, he was honorably discharged due to his epilepsy and, in June of 1863, tried to enlist in the 8th Iowa Cavalry Regiment, but was, again, discharged just a month later. The military couldn't take a soldier who had seizures every two or so days. Jobless and homeless, Alfred started traveling west and, over the next nine years, moved from place to place and from job to job, working jobs like a hunter, wagon teamster, ranch hand, field worker, and a miner, all of which he would eventually be fired from due to a combination of his frequent seizures, which he could not control, and his poor attitude, which he didn't wish to control, described by many in a very negative light. Another one of those jobs was a guide who was known to lose his way frequently. Keep this in mind as we continue this story. Now, in November of 1873, out near Salt Lake City, Utah, 20 men left the Brigham Canyon mines with plans to strike gold in Breckenridge, Colorado. The men, mostly strangers to one another, decided to band together and make their fortune. And about 25 miles into their journey, they happened upon Alfred Packer, who asked where they were going. 
They explained their mission, and upon hearing about their impending fortune, Alfred offered up his expertise, claiming he was both a prospector and a guide when the men debated on taking this ill-equipped stranger. What really sealed the deal, though, was when Alfred claimed that he knew the San Juan territory really well and could be instrumental to their safe passage. So they finally agreed, and he set off on the journey with them. Of course, all of his qualifications were completely fabricated, but none of these men knew as such and were under the impression that they had struck up some luck in finding him. That sentiment quickly diminished and was replaced by disdain as the men started to realize that Alfred had vastly overstated his level of expertise. Not only that, but he was greedy with the rations, lazy, a beggared, and obstinate, basically the opposite of what you would want during a long, treacherous journey. Moving slowly because of their unqualified guide, the group started to worry that winter was fast approaching and would become quite the obstacle. Before long, the snowy path got the best of Alfred and the party found themselves completely lost. Provisions quickly ran out, the men were forced to eat horse feed, and were nearing the point of making the horses themselves a meal when, on January 21st, 1874, the party came upon the Montrose, Colorado camp of Chief Ure a man known throughout the area as the white man's friend, who welcomed the weary travelers, supplied them with food, lodging, and some advice to postpone their expedition until the spring. Saying no Ute would attempt such a journey and that they were far more equipped for survival than these travelers, and that the journey would lead to almost certain death. Even offering them a place to stay until the winter passed and promising to share all that he and his tribe had with them. While the offer was more than generous, the men couldn't help but imagine the hordes of other miners descending upon Breckenridge and feared that if they stayed, they would lose their chance at the gold. The party, by the beginning of February, had become split, with some conceding to stay with Chief Ure and others desperate to continue on the journey. With the relentless snow impeding their wagons and horses, 10 of the men decided to stay behind while 11, including Alfred Packer, decided to proceed on, traveling first to Los Pinos Indian Agency, the nearest outpost, before heading off to Breckenridge. Chief Ure, realizing that there was no changing their minds, loaded the men up with their food for their journey and directions that would allow them to bypass the treacherous mountains. Alfred, however, still playing the role of a guide, claimed that the mountains were a more direct path and claimed it would take them to the outpost even faster. Five of the 11 men were adamantly in favor of following Chief Ure's advice, but with Alfred insisting he knew the country well and this way was much quicker, the other five, Shannon Wilson Bell, James Humphrey, Frank Butcher Miller, George California Noon, and Israel Swan, decided to go with him instead, a decision they would soon regret. As the group of six started their 75-mile journey up towards the San Juan Mountains on February 9th, they had just enough food to last them 14 days, possessed no snowshoes, carried just matches with no flint, and wore lightweight clothing so as to not slow them down. Two rifles, one pistol, a few knives, a hatchet, and minimal ammunition. On April 16, 1874, over two months after their journey began, Alfred Packer emerged from the woods and over the frozen lake bed near the Los Pinos Indian Agency with rags tied to his feet and close to death. The men at the agency hurried him inside, sat him down at the table, and gave him enough food to stabilize his fragile condition. He ate it so quickly, he vomited and had to wash down the taste with a few shots of whiskey. 
Warmed, fed, and a little bit drunk, Alfred regaled the men present with his harrowing story. According to the weary traveler, at some point in their journey, he had gone snow blind and was lagging behind the rest of his group, becoming a burden to his fellow travelers. He said that Israel Swan then turned around, handed him one of the rifles, and abandoned him with the rest of the group, forcing Alfred to survive on his own and make it out of the mountains with barely any ammunition and no real supplies. After surviving on nothing more than roots and rosebuds, Alfred was somehow able to make his way through the mountains and into the outpost. The listeners gathered around him, though intrigued, found his story a little bit odd, wondering how a man who had just eaten nothing but plants for the last month or so looked as though he was well-fed and in pretty good shape, all things considered. In fact, they reported that his face was actually a little bit bloated. Not wanting to question him too heavily, everyone left Alfred to recover. Alfred, who claimed he was broke, sold the rifle Israel had given him to a local major for $10, about $230 in today's money, and made himself at home at the agency for 10 days before he expressed his wish to return home to Pennsylvania, heading to nearby Sawatch to buy some supplies. Now, here's where things get a little suspicious. Alfred, who claimed to be penniless back at the outpost, made arrangements to room at a saloon where the owner claimed he spent about $100, over $2,000 in today's money, during the length of his stay. Much more than the meager $10 he had gotten from the rifle. In fact, Alfred offered to loan the owner $200 and spent about $78 in the general store to get all of his supplies. And where was he getting this money? From these several different wallets that seemed to be in his possession. With that money, Alfred also bought enough alcohol to tell several different conflicting stories about what happened to him up in the mountains. These stories turned into town gossip, and town gossip turned into suspicion when a man named Preston Nutter arrived in town and came to the saloon where Alfred was staying. Preston, in the company of two other party members, was part of the group who decided to stay with Chief Ure rather than go out to the mountains. Upon seeing Alfred, Preston asked about the rest of the party, to which he responded that he, quote, got his feet wet and frozen and had to set up fire to try and warm his feet while the other men went off looking for food. He was left with the rifle, as stated before, and, after a long time waiting, assumed he was abandoned by the group and was forced to make the rest of the journey on his own. Preston, also noting how well-fed Alfred looked for a man who was lost in the wilderness, questioned why the other men would leave behind their guide to go look for food in the unknown area, and thought it was odd that these men would leave behind one of their own with one of only two rifles that they needed to shoot the game. He also wondered where the Colt revolver that Alfred was carrying when he left the chief's camp was, how Alfred had enough money to afford room and drink, and how he got a hold of a skinning knife that belonged to Frank Miller. When asked about the knife, Alfred said that Frank stuck it in a tree before going off with the other men. Preston wasn't convinced and, with a sinking feeling, knew something nefarious had happened up in the mountains. Accusations were made, Words were exchanged, and Preston threatened to hang Alfred. The men were separated, and Alfred solidified his plans to leave and head home. While all of this was happening back at the agency, two of the five men who had taken the chief's route arrived after being rescued by government cowhands and were joined later by the other three remaining men. 
the men, including Oliver D. Lausenheiser, were introduced to the head of the agency, a man named General Charles Adams, who then told them that he had already received another one of their party members named Alfred Packer, who claimed that the party had deserted him. All five men were shocked and immediately discredited what Alfred had been telling them, saying that they knew the other party members and that they would never abandon one of their own even saying that Alfred was not a man who needed to be trusted. They convinced General Adams to dispatch an officer to retrieve Alfred and told him that they needed him to join a search party to look for the missing men, not wanting to scare him off by admitting that he was being questioned about their disappearance. He reluctantly agreed and mounted his recently purchased horse back to the agency. When he arrived, he was faced with not only General Adams, but the five men he had not seen since February, as well as an agency officer, who relayed to the other men that Preston Nutter claimed that Alfred had a sudden influx of money and was in the possession of things belonging to the missing men. Demanding answers, Alfred told the same story he told when he first arrived at the agency and showed concern for the missing men's well-being. No one was buying his lies anymore. And after more questions were asked and more lies were told, General Adams sent a man back to Sawash to clarify some accusations before convening the council and allowing the agency officers to settle the matter. Just as they began their proceedings, two Ute tribesmen rushed into the agency holding strips of dried human flesh that they were calling white man meat that they had found on the hill near the agency. Alfred, upon seeing the strips, reportedly fainted and, when revived, began begging for mercy. Through his sobs, he told what would later become one of several different official statements made over the course of the next three decades. In this new version of events, Alfred claimed that the men had all become exhausted much quicker into the journey than they had anticipated, the terrain rougher than they imagined. Before they knew it, the food supply was low, and they all survived together on a diet of roots, pine gum, rosebuds, and the occasional rabbit. But after a few days of no wildlife, the men started to eye one another in a very unsettling way. After a few days of nothing but roots, Alfred left the camp to gather some firewood, and when he returned, the other four men were standing around the dead body of Israel Swan, a hatchet stuck into his head. The men started to butcher Israel, Alfred accepting the situation and joining in, and in addition to sharing his meat, shared the $1,000 he had sitting in his pocket. Two days later, they were out of food once again, and that's when Alfred, Shannon Bell, James Humphrey, and George Noon decided to kill Frank Miller. He was, like Israel, killed with a hatchet blow to the head, butchered, robbed, and consumed. James Humphrey was next, and then it was George Noon. In the end, it was down to Shannon Wilson Bell and Alfred Packer, who claimed that they made a pact not to eat one another. At this point, both had some extra money in their pockets, as well as a rifle each. But after more days of nothing more than a rabbit and some roots, the men set up a camp near the lake and lay exhausted by their hunger. According to Alfred, after a few days of being down by the lake surrounded by hemlock trees, Shannon shot up from his blanket, screamed that he could not take it anymore, and that one of them needed to die for their food. He snatched up his rifle, ran towards Alfred, and readied it to bash into his skull. Alfred blocked the blow and instead hit Shannon in the head with his hatchet. He said that, fearing he was going to starve to death, he butchered the last remaining member of his group, 
ate as much as he could stomach, and went on his way. It wasn't long before he happened upon the Los Pinos Indian Agency, threw away his remaining strips of flesh, and went towards safety. A search party was mounted to find the remains of the missing men, while General Adams asked the Ute men if they knew of the area that Alfred described, the lake surrounded by hemlock trees. They said that they knew of a place about 50 miles away, and the search party headed in that direction. After two weeks, with Alfred acting as their guide, the party reached Lake Fork, but Alfred claimed the area didn't look familiar and that they must be lost. He was called a liar, threatened to be executed right then and there, but was instead taken back to the agency to be handled by the proper authorities. On the way back, Alfred attempted to murder one of the agency clerks, a man named Herman Lauder, with a large knife that he had hidden in his clothing. He was caught, restrained, and officially arrested. It was at this point that General Adams, trying to give Alfred the benefit of the doubt, realized that he was guilty, transported him back to Sawash, and jailed him just outside the town for his own protection. While behind bars, Alfred Packer retracted his statements and claimed the men got lost in a blizzard, made a pact to eat whoever succumbed to the elements, and did so one by one until it was just Alfred and Shannon Bell. Shannon tried to kill Alfred, and he, defending himself, accidentally killed the last remaining member of his party. The only one, according to his statement, to die of anything unnatural. The following August, the site of Shannon's last moments was located by an illustrator for Harper's Weekly magazine named John A. Randolph, who discovered all five bodies at the foot of the Sumgulian Pass above Lake Fork and in an area referred to as Dead Man's Gulch. It appeared that all five men met the fate Alfred claimed had only befallen on Shannon Bell and were all well within hiking distance of a nearby city if they had just descended Lake Fork instead of traversing it, a decision that Alfred Packer was in charge of. He sketched out the thawing bodies and alerted the nearby authorities. A local coroner would later note the extreme violence the men experienced prior to their deaths and members like James Humphrey and George Noon still had a large portion of their flesh remaining, meaning their deaths were not acts of desperation and survival. In fact, by the looks of the scene, the men died before the supplies had even been totally exhausted, leading to the theory that Alfred killed the men not to survive their desperate predicament, but to rob them of their possessions, slicing off meat when necessary before walking himself to safety. After burying the bodies, the search party returned to Alfred's makeshift jail cell, only to find it completely empty. Because it took so long to find the bodies, Alfred's only provable crime was the attempt on Herman Lauder's life. The Sawash County authorities were not happy about taxpayers' money being spent on keeping Alfred jailed and under constant guard and was allegedly passed a makeshift key for his irons, given some supplies, and allowed to escape before the proof of his real crimes were ever found. While on the run, Preston Nutter and Oliver D. Lausenheiser made it their personal mission to discredit all of Alfred's lies and qualifications for being a guide. Local papers soon picked up on the story, and before long, the Colorado cannibal was all anyone could talk about. Though it should be mentioned that, due to the Donner Party story and just a general understanding of the dangerous lifestyle these men lived, the cannibalism part of the story was not what made Alfred Packer a villain. It was the fact that he murdered the men with enough supplies to avoid such an act, 
that he lied about his qualifications, and that he was the sole reason these men were lost in the wilderness to begin with. On March 11, 1883, Alfred Packer, living under an alias, was found in Cheyenne, Wyoming, by one of the men from the original party who stayed with the chief. He claimed his main reason for fleeing was fear of mob justice. He was sent to Lake City for a trial and, once again, changed his story, claiming this time that Shannon Bell killed all of the other men after telling Alfred to go scouting for a way out of the mountains. He had been gone all day, and when he came back, there was a massacre. When asked why he did not tell this story before, Alfred said, quote, I was excited. I wanted to say something, and the story, as I told it, came first to my mind. At the trial, the prosecution claimed that the only reason for Alfred to attempt such a perilous journey was to purposely lead the men into the wilderness so he could kill and rob them. After seven days of testimony, with Alfred claiming his innocence, he was found guilty of premeditated murder of Israel Swan and sentenced to death by hanging. He was later spared the death penalty and had the murder charge overturned due to the fact that the murder took place before Colorado officially became a state as opposed to a territory, and a second trial was scheduled to begin. On June 8, 1886, he was convicted of five counts of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to eight years per count, 40 total. This was, at the time, the longest custodial sentence in U.S. history. Around the time of the second hearing, local hunters made official statements saying that, although the winter of 1874 was one of the worst they had ever seen, the area where Alfred led the men was still plenty active with wild game, both big and small. There was even a report that a deer carcass was found near the campsite, leading many to agree with the earlier statements that Alfred killed the men, not for survival, but for his own greed. After several appeals, all of which were denied, Alfred sent letters to local newspapers stating that he had been unjustly convicted by an unfair and unsympathetic judicial system. He was paroled on February 8, 1901, following a campaign by an old acquaintance named Dwayne Hatch and having served 18 years of his 40-year sentence. Twain's work got the attention of a reporter at the Denver Post named Polly Pry, who used Alfred's service in the army as a means to portray him publicly as a common man who got caught up in a regrettable situation, a man who was being slaughtered by the media for doing what he had to do to survive. Her story led to a change of heart within the local community, who petitioned for Alfred's parole, but not his pardon. Free to live his life, Alfred went to work as a guard for the Denver Post, and later as a ranch hand. He lived until April 23rd, 1907, when he died of, quote, dementia, trouble, and worry at 65 years old. It was reported that he lived out the rest of his life as a vegetarian. On July 17, 1989, 115 years after their deaths, the bodies of Alfred's travel companions were exhumed and re-looked into. The evidence uncovered was sufficient enough to conclude that Packer did in fact murder his companions to rob them of their belongings, but resorted to cannibalism out of necessity. However, when looked into again in 1994, and in conjunction with a look at the guns used, experts claim that Alfred's story of Shannon Bell killing the victims and Alfred killing him in self-defense was actually true. In the end, though, the true chain of events will likely remain a mystery. 
Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear a terrible thing happened on January 22nd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.